Welcome to the land of imagination. You are about to begin a journey into worlds where magic and monsters are the order of the day, where law and chaos are forever at odds, where adventure and heroism are the meat and drink of all who would seek their fortunes in uncommon pursuits. This is the realm of not only Dungeons and Dragons, but also our shared youth. In 1978, my older brother had just joined the Air Force, leaving me access to the mysteries of his room. The suburbs of Southern Florida were row after row of single-level ranch houses and manicured lawns. I was 11, filled with restlessness, inexplicable feelings. It was just before the dawn of puberty. Except for what I could glean from my brother's dirty magazines, sex was still an abstraction. Some other secret thing was beckoning, though. I am the god of hellfire, and I bring you fire. What is it about rock, more than any other art form of the modern age, that makes it such a perfect vehicle for this ancient and often unconscious drive to penetrate the veil between the phenomenal world and the numinous realm of spirit? At pivotal moments in its development, rock musicians and their audience together made an almost unconscious pact to expand their consciousness and push beyond the restraints of traditional American music and its underlying spiritual identity. The occult, the popular term for a wide range of spiritual beliefs and activities concerned with supernatural, Gnostic magic, and mystical ideas, became rock's very salvation taking possession of the imagination of rock musicians and their fans and redefining popular music and culture. Okay, and so why don't we begin by invoking the Holy Trinity, Lord of the Rings, D&D, and Led Zeppelin. Hello and good morning. I'm William Morgan and this is 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and TheSyncBook.com. We are a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. You can find us online at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at Sync6. It's Tuesday, the 7th day of April, and my hair is holy, so I grow it long for God. With that in mind, for this, our 179th broadcast, we are going to consider how the occult rock and roll. And our dungeon master today is Peter Biebergall, author, critic, and failed mystic. When Peter first explored his older brother's record collection at, at age 11, he discovered what so many of us had found in rock and roll, magic. And this is what he explores in his recent book, Season of the Witch, published by Tarcher Penguin this past fall, and which we consider today for 42 minutes. Mr. Biebergall writes regularly on the speculative and the slightly fringe, and his essays and reviews have appeared in the Times Literary Supplement, The Quietus, Boing Boing, and The Believer. He studied religion and culture at Harvard Divinity School and is the author of three books. More information about him can be found on his blog, mysterytheater.blogspot.com. We've really enjoyed reading this book during our music showcase last month, and it's quite an honor to have him here today. Welcome, Peter. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me. You really bet. A pleasure to be here. Yeah. Let's start with a funny anecdote. <clears throat> For the longest time, I've, I've had this million-dollar idea that I want to air to the world now. And the idea is something called The Lead of the Rings, which is Peter Jackson's trilogy, but without the, the uh, I can't think of the guy's name, the soundtrack that you know appeared in the theaters. What if it was rescored with all Led Zeppelin songs? 
<laughs> I think there are people out there who would rebuy the whole trilogy with a Lord of the uh, Led, Led Zeppelin soundtrack. Could you tell us why those two things go so well together in my mind, if they do? Yeah, well, you know, it's funny, particularly that you talk about that in regards to Led Zeppelin, because they are often name-checked as, you know, one of the most satanic bands, when in fact, I think they mention, or they 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 reference Lord of the Rings more than they do the devil in, in any of their songs. So they definitely were coming out of a... Uh, relationship to music and fiction and fantasy that was really taking off during the late 60s and early 70s. There was this sort of, there was definitely an occult sensibility, but I think it was much more pastoral, as it were, much more oriented towards the British Isles um, than it was towards anything actually satanic. And I think that that goes to the heart of what the sort of mistrust and misunderstanding that people have about the word occult. When I told people I was writing this book, one of the first things that they would ask me was that I must just be writing a book about bands that were into Satan. And that was such a small part of what I was interested in and, and what I discovered was that that really isn't what is the source of, of um, let's say, the occult imagination for, I think, uh, for rock and roll. And, and a band like Led Zeppelin is a great example of that. They were, um, they were inspired by certainly magic and, and occult ideas, but again, also, I think, a, a whole range of fringe, mystical and fantastical ideas that were part of the 60s and late 70s. And Tolkien really became much more um, much more well known, I think, due to the hippies um, than even to you know fantasy fans because they saw in Tolkien, I think, also a kind of um, almost luddite anti-industrialism um, with a taste of how um, sort of a more mystical, fanciful idea of the universe could be salvific, could be salvation. And so I think, you know, the hippies were looking for this. And at the end of the 60s, um, that dream kind of fell apart. Didn't work, as it were. Um, but there was a sudden increase, I think, in in the fantastic that, that we would see in... Um, in fiction, in film, and and particularly in music. So that was definitely a time, you know, I mean, I remember as a kid, you went from Tolkien to the sort of Shannara, you know, which at the time I didn't realize how terrible <laughs> that was, but, <laughs> you know, but it only made sense, you know, but also Heavy Metal Magazine and, um, and then Marvel Comics did um, Epic Illustrated, which I think is an, sort of an unrecognized classic um, of its time. How does this fit into the, to the occult imagination? I think it's all of a spectrum. And, and part of it is what I try to define in the book is rather than saying, um, you know, it's one belief or another belief, it's actually a spectrum of, of beliefs and ideas and conversations that what people were having about sort of these fringe ideas that many times express themselves as an interest in Satan, um, but just as often expressed itself as an interest in cosmic consciousness um, or an interest in Pan or an interest in 
um, Hawkwind's sort of interstellar uh, mysticism. Okay, so back to the clarification of terms, and you mentioned one of them there. We need to we need a better understanding of what the word occult and what the the words of occult imagination means. Yeah, so I think that that's an essential. You know, occult literally means, and people who are interested in the occult like to say it just means secret or hidden. But I'm not really interested in sort of the the dictionary definition as much as I'm interested in the cultural definition. And the cultural definition of the occult is incredibly vast. You say to say a born-again Christian, um, with all due respect, what is the occult? And they'll say it's worshiping the devil. Yes. Um, right. So, but that's a very small part of, of what that is. You say it to somebody else who say is um, all they are is skeptical and kind of irritated by anything that has to do with spiritual ideas. And they might say, oh, it's just another sort of superstitious idea that people have gotten duped into and in believing that you can divine the future, or you can cast a spell um, to have somebody love you. And so again, those are now, I would say both of those are wrong in terms of not wrong, but, but are exaggerated notions of what the occult is, but they certainly play out in how people have understood it. And so the occult imagination was my way of defining, again, this very broad spectrum that has to do with both those people that literally believe um, in supernatural powers, those who think it's all completely ridiculous but makes for very good marketing, and those who say that it is actually some um, conspiracy of, uh, of, of Satanists and the Illuminati uh, to try to take over the world. So all of those um, have to do with this broad, um, this broad understanding and these broad definitions of what it is. But I think at the root of it, at, at the bottom of it, is that human beings have for millennia sought to engage with the divine in ways that have pushed them up against mainstream thoughts about what our spirituality should and could be. And more often than not, those have involved certain practices um, that their church or their community has seen as being transgressive. Um, and so what I became very interested in when I was writing this book was how the occult, whether or not a band or a musician or an artist believed it, literally became a metaphor in some ways for a way of 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 being um, of being experimental, of being rebellious, of being on the fringe, and what's really interesting is we see this going even as far back as uh, some of the uh, early avant-garde and experimental composers of the 18th and 19th century. For those musicians who were uh, and composers who were thinking about music in a new way, who were trying to push up against normative or mainstream ideas about what classical music should be or what, or what a composition should look like. Many of those composers were also by extension interested in occult uh, beliefs, whether it was theosophy, many of them were Masons. Um, some of them belonged to Rosicrucian organizations, people like Debussy and Ravel um, and Satie for a time. So they also 
as they were experimenting with musical forms and saw that what they were doing was, again, pushing up against what would be considered uh, mainstream or acceptable, it only made sense that they would also turn to spiritual beliefs that felt it gave them also room to explore uh, beyond, say, what the church uh, presented to them. So we finally get a really wonderful, uh, I think, um, coalescing of that in rock and roll. You mentioned the 60s failed, and I think you know most people would agree with that. And this is maybe the the knot that I really want to explore. Uh, there's the book that came out a couple years ago called All Things Shining, and it kind of defines a god as something that focuses a culture, which I which I really liked. And they said that the 60s, you know, did fail, but they almost didn't fail. You know, they were refocusing the culture with a, a number of different thoughts, some Eastern, some occult. Um I'm 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 curious about the idea of refocusing a cult a culture because when it does fail it seems like those beliefs we retroactively think that they're false so there's this idea of the mystic gets the divine revelation and then this is the truth but the truth no longer you know if if the if the cult itself collapses somehow that becomes less true. And so, you know, could you talk about that in, yeah. in relationship to like the acid gurus? Like this is a really interesting subject for our audience as far as how valid those ideas and thoughts were. I mean, at the time, yes, but now maybe less so. Well, it's interesting though, what we end up with is we end up with the consequences of them, which for the most part were completely transformative. I, a long time ago, when I was working on my second book, Too Much to Dream, I interviewed Wavy Gravy for that book, who was, um, you know, part of the the Merry Pranksters and went on to do, continued to do activism. Um, and he said that without LSD, without the the, the change in con- not not necessarily the drug itself as a, but the but but how it changed consciousness that that transformation of consciousness is what ultimately, now this could be argued, I'm just quoting what he said, mm-hmm. um, ultimately is what made possible things like women's liberation, the anti-war movement, um, that, that, those I, that, that the way in which those things are part of our culture today the way in which they're so integrated into who we are and how we, what we understand about our life, sexual revolution, um, that, that that's a result of that, that dramatic shift in consciousness made possible by LSD. And I would say by extension, um, Eastern mysticism ideas and even, even the occult. And what's interesting is even the, the sometimes the political oriented hippies were very irritated by sort of the, the, LSD guru types. They didn't see what they were doing as being very potent ultimately, um, except for putting on some really good rock and roll shows, right? So how do you really change the world with this? But what you eventually will see is that they begin to use some of that language. So for example, um, one of the great political stunts that Abby Hoffman put on was everybody trying to, uh, everybody holding hands around the Pentagon and trying to, uh, um, 
you know, have it um, levitate. Uh, uh, levitate. Thank you. I couldn't get that word out. To have it levitate. So here's a here's a and what did they? How did they? do that. They did that using occult language, using occult metaphors. They talked about it in terms of this sort of uh, magical consciousness. So obviously everybody, nobody, everybody knew that it wasn't going to levitate. Maybe there were a few <laughs> people that were tripping that thought it might actually happen. But I would say for the most part, even the people that were there, quote, making it happen, knew it wasn't really going to happen. But by virtue of it being a cult, has a sense of transgressiveness and a you know, um, and, and of rebellion. So, so what you eventually see also is that, that the political shifts of the time often use similar kinds of language, similar kinds of ideas and metaphors to make sense of that. And we also know, you know, there's been some great work written on how the computer revolution um, at Stanford was very much a result of people um, using LSD to explore their own consciousness and and being inspired by that to rethink things like computer and artificial intelligence and things like that. So um, so it may be that this ultimate psychic, you know, Aquarian age transformation fails, um, but but that doesn't mean that the its impact isn't still felt today. Yeah. And then speaking of symbols and metaphors a little, could you tell our listeners a little bit about the UFO club? Yeah, yeah, good idea. Oh, boy, yeah. I mean, that's that's where so much happened. Um, that's the place um, for a very short time, really only a year, where you had probably some of the most important um, bands from the 1960s, from Pink Floyd, Soft Machine, um, Arthur Brown, Crazy World of Arthur Brown, put on shows, and it was also one of the places where you really had this um, really incredible merging of art, music, um, acid consciousness come together and, I think, ultimately change rock and roll forever. Um, Not only in terms of the music that was being played, but how music itself, how the rock and roll experience could become something akin to maybe um, a tribal um, communal experience. Um, it was different from just being next to somebody else screaming at the Beatles while they played. This was something where the audience itself became part of the experience and the show um, through the dancing, through people. Um, and this, this would go on um, in many ways to, I think, inspire things like the human beings and and things like that. Um, but it was really... Um, where this incredible um, experimentation um, in England was happening and where bands like Pink Floyd got their start and bands like Soft Machine, which may not be as popular as Pink Floyd, but bands like Soft Machine that would go on to influence any number of of musicians um, and bands. And then, of course, the crazy world of Arthur Brown, who I argue in the book um, is really the person who I think is responsible uh, for the whole trajectory of of, of theatrical and performative um, expressions of music on stage with makeup and costumes um, and even you know sort of some special effects that that he was able to do and and Arthur Brown himself was somebody who really saw what he was doing as a musician as something akin to a shamanic. Uh, kind of experience that, that there was a transmission between him and the audience that was actually tr- transformative. 
And I think that really gets to the, the UFO club and, and somebody like Arthur Brown, I think, really gets to the heart of, of the argument that I want to make in the book, which is that if there is any real magic at all in the world, um, and we're using rock and roll in this, in this book, as a, I was using it as a place to explore that, it's in that transmission between the audience um, and the performer, that something people are being... Uh, their consciousness is being changed in that moment, and and what is the definition of magic if not this this uh, you know change in the world, which I believe is really a manifestation of consciousness rather than actually you know changing the physical nature of the world. But let's talk about the 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 dark side of this. And so I've uh, I've been reading The King in Yellow, which is kind of fun because it's this idea that something can enter into consciousness that taints you, and somehow mm-hmm. um, David Bowie talk about you know his his cocaine uh, darkest days a little bit. Sure. Well, you know the problem is is that. You know, uh, the occult, by its uh, nature of having to do with the human, tri- the human being trying to um, have a direct encounter with the divine or with the spirit world or whatever it is, um, is often shaped by ideas about power, right? Um, to conjure the demon or the angel or whatever it is, you have to know its name. It's an essential part of the... Um, you know, the method of, of whether you, again, whether you believe it's true or not is irrelevant. I just want you and your audience to know that I'm just, I'm using metaphors here. We don't have to get into a debate about whether or not these things actually work. Mm-hmm. This is, um, it's about metaphors. It's about how they function in human consciousness and in, in human psychology. Um, and so to conjure the demon, you have to know its name. And once you know its name, you have power over it. Um, and are you going to use that power to ascend further into um, the Godhead, or are you going to stop and use that power to have the demon do your laundry, right? And so um, I think it's very tempting, though, that when you're playing with those ideas to feel powerful. And I think David Bowie was somebody who very much got lost um, within his um, his fame, his alchemical um, transformations of his characters, his interest in the occult. Um, He even for a time sort of saw how um, fascist ideology was a kind of form of consciousness control, very much like the way the occult can be, um, or the magician on stage can, you know, um, have his, have the audience sort of suspend disbelief um, and think that he's really sawing the woman in half. So it's all it's all part of a, I think, of a continuum of, of the, our relationship uh, to these things. And Bowie became very enamored of that and, and saw what he was doing as maybe a danger. He even referred to what he was doing as having as being dangerous. And you add drugs to that, you're already a little bit paranoid. You're already a little bit high on sort of or or losing a sense of yourself in these characters that you're creating. Um, you add drugs to the mix, and it's it's explosive. So he ended up um, becoming very psychically sick as a result of that, and even later would sort of say that he recognized that he had taken it all um, too far. Now, in the meantime, though, he produced some of the greatest albums 
you know, <laughs> it will ever have. And, and the funny thing about all of this that we're talking about it in the end, is just about the music, right? I mean, we're talking, we're talking about things like Led Zeppelin and, and Bowie um, and Pink Floyd and UFO Club, but let's never forget that, you know, the, these are moments in, in cultural history that are absolutely astounding in terms of their artistry and their, um, their creativity and, and how they have transformed everything about pop culture, not just rock and roll, but the way in which these things have extended out into film and, and art and literature um, in ways that are just so profound. So, you know, Bowie is somebody who I think I, and I say, and I've said before, I think he is the true magician in the story of rock and roll because he used these methods to transform himself and to transform the audience and to transform culture in a way that we could say is, is a, a true act of will um, in the magical sense of the word, you know, in the sort of in the Crowleyan uh, sense of the word. Uh, are you familiar with Philip K. Dick at all? Oh, yeah, of course. Now, I like the connotation of Mother Goose and the Vallis, uh, the Vallis novel as I mean, we've talked to some of Philip K. Dick's friends on our podcast, and you know it's a good fit for David Bowie and Mother Goose to be the exact same person. And I'm wondering what you think about that, like David Bowie actually being some kind of uh, an alien savior or at least a symbol for it. I mean, because in a way, like if if you read Vallis and Philip K. Dick goes to the movie and he sees all these hidden symbols, right? And, you, and if you associate that movie with The Man from Outer Space with David Bowie, David Bowie becomes the symbol like that obsesses Philip K. Dick. And you can see it even permeating through, you know, Major Tom and actually David Bowie's association with perhaps, you know, Bowman from 2001 A Space Odyssey. And it's weird because the more that I get to know David, the more, or Bowie, I mean, because I'm just now listening to Ziggy for like the first time in my life and everything, and it's blowing oh my, my mind. Yes. Yeah. But I, I worked in a CD store for so long, and I'm like, how have I never listened to this album? Do you know what I mean? Like, Ziggy now is like special to me. <laughs> yeah, it's an amazing uh, moment in history. And again, I mean, it's, you know, the symbol is the thing. So that's where its power is. It doesn't, right. again, it... Media right, is so, the message, kind of, the idea. Right? <laughs> so, so David Bowie is that. There are secret messages and stuff, and there's this whole, like, occult teaching in his work. But the question is, and I guess, was it intentional? Is it what we impose on it? Does it matter, right? I think it only matters where we try to um, turn it into a, uh, well, for me, turn it into a literal understanding of the nature of the cosmos, as it were. I mean, there's the human interaction with these symbols, but, you know, there's a, a warning that I always um, hold dear, which is from Umberto Eco's novel, the name of uh, the, the um, Foucault's Pendulum, uh, where one of the characters warns another to not turn metaphysics into mechanics, right? That to talk about our psychic, our spiritual um, relationship to symbols, to to art, 
doesn't necessarily have to lead into a, a, a complete reshaping um, of the nature of the universe itself in a in in terms of um, phys- in terms of its physics. I mean, this is Alan Moore. Um, um, the comic book writer who's also a, a self-named magician um, in the occult sense of the word, you know, even he says that he does not believe that magic can can alter physical laws, but he doesn't even think it, it should or it matters to. What matters is how it changes consciousness and, and how through that change in consciousness um, we can have new and interesting forms of art and other kinds of expression. Um, and that's, I think, again, where, where it's most potent magic actually takes place. I'm much more interested in, in the expression of these things through art and literature um, and music than I am in, in any kind of sort of, uh, you know, sort of structural analysis of, of um, how these things can actually change if, you know, if they can actually change the physical, physical world. And if they can, I'm not, I don't even want to know about it. I just make some art, make some music. Let, let's have that shared universal experience in that way. Well, so, I mean, that's one of the things that really interests us, the space between where the, the art becomes the, the, the worldview, the thing that people, the story that roots people and gives them their lives a sense of meaning and so, you know, how does the mystic become, you know, the mystic receives this divine revelation, whether it's Bowie or Philip K. Dick. How is it that some of the, and some of them, you look back in the past, like Blavatsky or Crowley, they almost do be, you know, they start things that seem to be religions, worldviews and political movements. What what is your sense of this now and music? Does it have any teeth? And, and you know, it's it feels like we're in this nihilistic moment right now. What is, what is your sense of our time and place? Yeah, I mean, it is it is a it is a rough time. I have a I have a 13 year old son, and I was talking to him and his cousins uh, about the same age, and I said, "What do you think about the state of the world right now? You know, growing up in the world and." My son said, we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we left a big mess, <laughs> you know, for them. And, but I think that, you know, he has hope and he has hope. I think a lot of what drives his hope is art and is music. And, and I think that we see that particularly in, in experimental, you know, places, uh, experimental music um, where people are, um, you know, trying to create new ways of thinking about what's possible. And, um, you know, can we have still have profits? I mean, the problem is today, and I think even then is that ego, you know, we live in a world that's too driven by ego and too driven by pride. Um, and even somebody like Crowley and, and Blavatsky, I think, you know, again, power becomes something that taints, um, you know, what's possible. So the people that I look to, you know, for having information that I feel like I need, um, again, tends to be people that are thinking about things who are oriented towards, uh, towards artistic expression. Because you can't be literal, I think, when, when you're dealing with art. Um, you, you, to, to be successful, in some ways, you have to try to create something that's, 
that's as universal as possible, which allows for multiple interpretations, multiple ways of, of having an engagement with it. Um, and I think that's really what's wonderful about thinking about, uh, you know, the history of the occult and its relationship to rock and roll is, you know, it's like during the 80s Satan scare, you know, you had Christians who were going bonkers about the possibility of a satanic conspiracy. But then you had al- you had musicians that were purposefully just putting upside down pentagrams on their album covers to get a rise out of people. And it's, you know, so if the devil doesn't exist, in my view, but you have these two people uh, in supposedly opposing camps doing everything they can to keep the image of the devil alive. You know, whether you are against it or for it, if that's all you're talking about, this thing becomes activated as a principle, right, in culture. And people see, forget see that. that that's how you're giving it power. Well, that's what it, it's the exact same thing. I mean, when you when you look at it close enough, it is the devil's music. I mean, isn't it? it, it and you, you said something also about the ego as well. Doesn't rock and roll actually like encourage the whole materialistic ego, like be the star type of mentality? I hate to play devil's. Oh no, I don't. I love playing devil's. <laughs> yeah, sure, of course, and that's the danger, right? And that's why it always falls. But into that, but then you see musicians themselves who turn away from that. I mean, I think somebody like Mick Jagger uh, became very enamored of this idea of being a kind of dandied, Mephistophelian, um, you know, handsome devil as it were, and became very interested in, in you know, his, his things like what the, the, um, the relationship he, they had for a short time with Kenneth Anger and um, writing the songs Sympathy for the Devil and doing these things live and strutting around, you know, um, like he just made some kind of Faustian pact. Um, but eventually, you know, he saw that it wasn't the devil that was giving him this power, um, or even the idea of the devil that he was just a talented young man, um, and that he made this happen, and that maybe those ideas um, don't lead always to, towards something um, positive. And so, certainly, there's a place to see how the darker imagination um, can sometimes lead to to negative to negative consequences, and that's a shame that that has to be that way. But then, you know, right after the big uh, run-on with the devil, uh, ascension of the devil in pop culture, particularly in the 70s, um, we start to see a move with progressive rock musicians towards something a little bit more cosmically hopeful, right? Driven by both a mix of Eastern mysticism and, again, a kind of cosmic consciousness, Um Certainly, that's that has to be you know all art has to be driven by ego at some level. That doesn't make it by it doesn't necessarily mean it has anything to do with the dark side. Um, you have to believe in what you're doing, and that that does require some amount of of ego, I would imagine. It also kind of speaks to the failings of Christianity and Protestantism, where there's this idea that transcendence is disembodied and so that leaves the material plane you know it's like that's the devil's realm and so to try and you know the a, a communal experience ends up being embodied and it's thus as you mentioned in the book the old gods come marching in well i don't know when the last time you were you had gone to church doug but if you go to church now it's mostly a rock concert i know that there's quite a few churches around here that have drum risers do you get what i mean 
Sure. I mean, they found that that's a very potent means of getting these, getting ideas across. There's a wonderful moment in that I quote in uh, the book of this early Pentecostal minister who saw his sort of white church as being very staid and and boring in, in their forms of worship. And he saw in the black church uh, what at the time was considered the kind of the way in which they worshiped as potentially being demonic, um, the, the really almost ecstatic singing. And he said to his congregation, we can't let the devil keep all this good rhythm. <laughs> so there's, a, there's this wonderful idea that you have to give over to that part of yourself a little bit if you're going to be able to activate some ecstatic moment. And I think we see that, you know, that's become, like you said, that's the mainstream church now. But that started in the black church. That's the church where at one time those ideas, that, that way of worshiping was considered suspect. And in fact, um, the African-American slaves, even though they were, uh, had many converted to Christianity or were believing Christians, when they were still slaves, had to, had to worship that way in secret or they could be in big trouble because it was seen that what they, that that kind of worship was not in line with the good mainstream Christian way of, of worshiping that you shouldn't be dancing and throwing your arms up and screaming and shouting. That looked too much like the barbarism of Africa. Well, that's what the, that's what the whites believed. So they actually had to worship that way in practice, but you know, in secret, but that ends up becoming now the mainstream way of worship in, in many places. And not only that, but I believe that it really is the foundation of much of rock and roll's internal energy. And even there, even there, we see that this way of worshiping, which I, which I think does in some ways come from the early African traditions, was a form of spiritual rebellion, even though it was Christian. It was still seen as a way of rebelling and pushing up against what was expected or what was believed to be the only one true way. So then what, what is getting your son excited? What is he listening to and what are you listening to? So my son is really into hip-hop, and so my wife and I have been working very hard to expose him to the real stuff. <laughs> so we've been listening, we've been listening to, uh, with him, we've been listening to Tribe Called Quest and MF Doom. And, uh, he's, God he's bless just, you, sir. <laughs> yeah, he, um, and uh, Mad Lib, and he's been interested, he's just started getting interested in uh, Ghostface Killer. Um, I've been a completely, my wife and I have been completely obsessed with this album, uh, Les, Les Majesty by Shabazz Palaces, which were the guys, couple, I think one of the guys from Diglo Planets. Uh -huh. um, I think it's, it's you know, Afrofuturism. It's music of the future. It's really astonishing. For my sort of interest area of stuff that came out of the book, I think there's a lot of really terrific bands that are playing with some occult uh, themes and ideas in very, you know, I don't want to say literal, but in, in, in very explicit ways. There's a band called Hex Vessel uh, from Finland, which is, they're absolutely astonishingly beautiful. Uh, a couple of really fun uh, nods to the 1970s is a band called Blood Ceremony um, and a band called Person, P-U-R-S-O-N, both female vocal um, 
person has flutes, which can't go wrong. If you ask me, <laughs> in a rock band. Um, there's a wonderful sort of tribal band called um, Goat, which has been uh, putting out some really, really amazing records. And there's just a really lot of great stuff going on in the experimental underground realm. Um, and again, people are, you, you, you listen to any of these things and you see that there's, uh, there tends to be this when you when you look at underground music, whether it's electronic or whatever, there tends to be this um, engagement with occult um, or esoteric themes, either in the music or just in the names of the albums or the the album art. You know, there's definitely a place still where if you feel like what you're doing or your attention is to do something that's that's underground or on the fringe, that it makes sense to align your ideas at least um, with imagery that comes from spiritual arenas that in some ways would also be considered fringe. Whether or not you believe them as true is sort of besides the point. They function as really powerful metaphors for a lot of musicians today. What are you, what are you working on now? Can, what do you have to look forward to? Um, I I'm very interested right now in the relationship between the occult um, and spirituality and technology. And so I'm looking into, just been doing some research. I've been reading Frankenstein. <laughs> been, uh, oh my gosh. Great, and that, yeah, yeah, we didn't touch on Robert Moog at all. Oh God, yeah, that's another whole thing. Yeah. What an interesting character. I had no idea. Yeah, and that's really, again, where... You know, he saw, he, he made, he invented this instrument. And when you asked him about it, he talked about that instrument as being a conduit for some higher force. He really understood that as a vessel through which some universal consciousness, as it were, was making itself manifest. Well, that was 42 minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Peter Biebergall on SyncBook Radio, a production of thesyncbook.com. Information about the work of Mr. Biebergall can be found at mysterytheater.blogspot.com. Now, is that a reference to, isn't the Mystery Theater from Herman Hess and Steppenwolf? Um, no, it, I remember reading Steppenwolf as a kid, as like a, as a, maybe in my early 20s. I don't. Um, Maybe that's think the that's what I, I was originally inspired by the, um, the the DC Vertigo comic book called Sandman Mystery Theater, oh. which was about a uh, sort of 1930s uh, superhero, sort of like the Shadow. Um, but I just always love that term, mystery theater. It's just very evocative. Awesome. And for more information about the Sync Book, our guest, to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to the complete audio archives, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio and video, as well as monthly online hangouts with the host. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much. And if you make enough noise, no matter your instrument, you can keep the old gods alive forever. I am the god of hellfire, and I bring you fire.